ordered this wonderful meal from these lovely people I'd met over just after their siesta mm-hmm. closed. And we had a delightful stay, only by happenstance, you know. I, I think that the theme of my life is like seize serendipity or yeah, something like nice. that. Well, here's a little bit more serendipity. Hi, and welcome to Tomversations. That's T-H-O-M-versations, where the H makes all the difference. How the H are you? I'm Tom Cocaine, your host, and I'm doing all right. Thanks. And uh, today you'll hear a conversation with Nancy Cheney. She's quite an accomplished woman. Let's see. You know, she's a former nurse via some veterinary interests. We'll get into that. She's also a former mayor of Moscow, Idaho. She's a business owner. She studied climate science. And we have a great talk, you know, a number of things. We discuss about her being mayor, talk about travel, a nice fun trip that she took to Spain. She talks about One Health, very interesting, which combines human, animal, and environmental health. Also talk about some politics. So this was recorded before the 2018 midterm. So just so you know, okay, it's a good talk. She's very knowledgeable. Of course, you know, that's what this podcast is all about. Stories, experience, and knowledge. Here she is. Let's talk to Nancy Cheney. Thanks for doing this. You know, you don't have to do this, and I appreciate it, and it's time out of your day, and I really do appreciate you coming in for a conversation. The name is just so stupid. I love it. It's great, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. The, the, I was talking to a friend of mine, and I said, uh, was talk, we were doing kind of this, just, to, just like trying it out, and I said, oh, no. I found, I just came up with the worst name. <laughs> Tomversations. It's so bad. It's the best worst name podcast. That's what I say. You know, something that you've done that I'm really curious about is that you were mayor from like, what, 2008 to 2014? Is that correct? 2006. 2006. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me about that. Tell me about being mayor. How did you become mayor? Ah, it could be a long, convoluted story, really. I'm, I'm so interested, really. Uh, well, I didn't start out to become a politician. It was furthest from my mind. You really? Know, really. Uh, I was a nurse by training. I provided end-of-life care for my mom in Boise, and it caused me to take a break from my career to care for her. Ah. And when I came home to Moscow, I still had my husband. I still had our new business that he had just started after his retirement. And I decided I'd just enroll in a class at the university. My employers had held my job for me. I mean, I had a terrific job, too, in nursing. But after the intense experience I'd just been through Mm -hmm. with my mom, I I thought, you know what? I want to see if I can still do it. So I enrolled in a class at U of I called Issues for the Emerging Landscape. and Issues for the Emerging Landscape. Right. Um, you know, I was new to computers, and when I came home, of course, my husband had set up our new business with a fancy new computer, uh-huh. and so I learned about Google, and I put in all these words I was passionate about, and up popped this field of environmental science that I had never heard of. I oh. thought I invented it. <laughs> and, and so this one class happened to fit within that realm. It, it involved things like community planning and Uh, the connection between the built and the natural environment, how to connect indoor and outdoor spaces. How does that affect people? How does it affect the way we use our our spaces and how we interact with one another? It sounded like the perfect class. Yeah. And I was hooked. It sounds really deep. There's a lot going on there. there. That was one class? That was one class. Wow. Yeah. And a, a number of the people I met... 
our faculty members uh, now. They came in as visiting lecturers, and we've maintained our friendships all these years. It started in 2000 mm-hmm. when I came back to graduate school, and that one class won me over. So I enrolled uh, as a, a master's student for environmental science at that time. When I finished that program, I was job hunting, um, and over the course of my academic experience, I uh, needed one extra credit somewhere. And Nick Saniel, a professor in the College of Natural Resources, said, why don't you sign up for an internship with the Leta Trail Foundation? Hmm. And I inquired, and I came back, and I said, Nick, they don't have one. And he said, why don't you tell them why they need one <laughs> while you're the perfect person for it? So I took this this uh, suggestion, uh-huh. and sure enough, they absolutely needed me. <laughs> and I scored that one credit. But in the course of doing that, I met the executive director of the foundation, mm-hmm. Pam Palmer. And Pam was a very charismatic, politically inclined person. She'd served in local government before. And um, when John Dickinson then... The I know I'm getting off on tangents, but the, okay. I promise I'll lace them together. Oh, all right. uh, John Dickinson was chair of computer science, and when he retired from University of Idaho, he decided he wanted to serve in public office. He was Sammy Al Hussein's lead professor, and Sammy was accused of terrorism activities, oh, and yes. John knew he was absolutely innocent, and he was so angered and frustrated by the way our government worked or didn't work, that he wanted to run for office. So he wanted to do it as well as he could, to be as well prepared as he could. And through the grapevine in Moscow, he learned about this Pam Palmer. So John introduces himself and explains why she needs to become his uh, campaign manager and teach him the ropes for running for office. And we got closer to the election, and they still needed someone else to run for city council. Pam knew me from our work together on the Leita Trail Foundation, and John was a newbie, so she pitched the idea that I should run as well. And I said no several times before my arm was twisted hard (laughs) enough. And I thought, you know, it's only filling out the remainder of two years on a term. I can do this. So would that be an appointment? or No, it was an election. For a two-year appointment? Oh, that's because years. it is only a two-year appointment for, well, to to the to the city council, right? No, city council's four years. Oh, is it four? But okay. someone had resigned. I see. Okay. And so two years were remaining, mm-hmm. and uh, it, I decided I would give it a try. I'm, I'm going. How bad could it be? It's only two years. But anyway, that sort of derailed my job hunting for environmental science. But once I got into office, um, I loved that work. And two years later, uh, I had an opportunity to run for mayor and chose to do that. And I would say that was the best job I've ever had. It was. It gave me a chance to apply all of the things I knew in life from my previous careers, from my interests, and I, I think I was good at it, uh, and it was very fulfilling for me. So you now tell me about the structure of the Moscow Idaho uh, City Council. Mm-hmm. So it's it's um, what is that called? You're not you're, there is no mayor position that you run for. You're basically part of the city council, and how and then there's a mayor opportunity, or is there a mayor seat? I, I'm not really clear on that. Right, the mayor's position is an at-large position, so it's elected separately from the city council. Okay, and there are six council members who uh, run for four-year terms. They're staggered so that half of the council is elected each two years, Mm -hmm. and they're usually opposite general elections. So we don't, for example, this is not a local election year for the city, 
although we do have some county uh, campaigns going mm-hmm. on right now. Mm-hmm. And so now you became, you decided to run for mayor? Were you running up against an incumbent? Um, I was running against the heir apparent of the incumbent. Ah. Uh, It was a council member who was very well regarded as a moderate. And uh, uh, I think a lot of people presumed that he would become the next mayor. Um, And Somehow, I think there was a, an appeal for newness, a fresh perspective, mm-hmm. something that was a little different. And at, around that time, there was a, um, a coalition that developed. It was called the Moscow Civic Association. Mm. John Dickinson and I were endorsed by that organization, a group of people who said, enough already. We need more transparency, accountability, and accessibility mm-hmm. in our government. And, you know, at the time, we had... Uh, council committee meetings in the afternoon discussing particular items. They would vote on these things and give recommendations to the full council, and then they would convene that same evening to vote on some of those issues. And we thought that didn't allow enough time for public process, for for -hmm. people to know what the issues were, to know how they might formulate their opinions, whether Mm -hmm. they supported them or not, to ask questions of their elected officials. And so in order to open up government, to kind of shake it up so, you know, you could almost predict how issues would be decided before they were even discussed. And so the group of of people decided we wanted something different Mm -hmm. in our university community. Mm -hmm. And and we got that in a major way. There was a real surprising shakeup in in local government at that time. Well, that sounds like not not a very good policy to discuss it and then vote on it that same Mm -hmm. day, especially something that affects a a wide community. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. So uh, that policy, we changed that right away when we came into uh, the city council Mm -hmm. ourselves. And that policy persists to this day. Ah, well, well done. Thank you. And so now, so you were mayor for a good, uh, what, uh, eight years. years. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, um, so when you're mayor, what does a mayor do? I mean, every town, it seems like, has a mayor. Now, maybe not every town, but it seems like everybody, every town's got a mayor. But really, what does a mayor in Moscow, Idaho do? Mm-hmm. Well, it, you know, different mayors in different communities have different commitments and obligations. And as you mentioned at the outset, in some cases, the mayor is elected from among the city council members. Mm-hmm. And as I indicated, in Moscow, that's an at-large position. So the mayor is the chief executive officer for the city. Uh, responsible for uh, signing all the documents that are endorsed by the the, uh, city council uh, that are voted on, uh, representing the city at public meetings. Uh, I would uh, give recommendations for uh, my opinion on issues. You don't have to stand back and remain disengaged, but facilitating the city council meetings, um, inviting public input, uh, controlling the quasi-judicial process so that everyone is heard fairly. Yeah. We always used kind of a modified Robert's Rules of Order just mm-hmm. to maintain some sense of decorum and an orderly discussion that was fair to everyone involved, but not so rigid that it was inaccessible to the lay public or unattractive in some way. Um, the The mayor uh, would uh, appoint 
committee members or commission members. So when volunteers from the citizenry would come forward and say, I'd like to apply to be on the arts commission or the tree commission or transportation or something like that, uh, I would always interview those people, give my recommendations to the city council. And so they, with the, the consent of the council, these people would be appointed. So the mayor has roles in shaping some of the government process just by virtue of shaping the the volunteer citizen commissions that are such an important part of what we do here in Moscow. And is that like, how many hours a week do you work? Is it a 40-hour week work? Or what do you, how many hours do you do? Is it part-time? Right. So when I first was looking to run for city council, I asked one of the council members how much time it took, and she estimated maybe you could do it in 12 hours. And... Uh-huh. Uh, so, so as a council member, I expanded considerably more than that, although I do have a day job too. Mm. Um, but as mayor, there were some weeks when I'd put in 60-hour weeks, and that was by choice, and it was because I have flexibility as an independent business owner. Not everyone can do that, and it's not required for the job. It, all these are considered part-time. And it's not paid a lot either, I would assume. No, I, you know, I can't exactly remember now what it was, but I think at the time – Council members were probably getting paid somewhere between ten and twelve thousand dollars a year. Wow. May, mayor maybe approaching twenty thousand, something like wow. that. Wow, that's nothing. That's that's. I mean, for the, such a big job, and and being the the face and the representative of it, and that uh, that seems like such low pay. Well, you, ideally, you don't do it for the money, um, and. You know, last week I had a chance to interact with some students, uh, some people who are taking English as a second language, and mm. they have kind of group gatherings to practice their English language skills. Mm. And boy, they grilled me, asked some really challenging yeah. questions. And they said, does a salary like that mean that only wealthy people can serve in public office? And that hasn't been the case. We've had retirees, we've had people with low income, uh, we've had people who are uh, full, full-time full employed and all of that, and just quite a mixture. So I don't think the, the amount of money, you know, high or low, has been influencing too many people on their choice to run. Well, you know, uh, kind of going on a tangent of that, wasn't there, wasn't there something that to like 80 or 90% of all politicians at the, at the federal level are millionaires? Yikes! I hadn't heard that. Yeah. But... I, I, okay. Maybe that's maybe that I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. I should Google it. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's a large percentage of the people who are in uh, federal government in the legislature who are millionaires. A quick Google search found that more than half the members of Congress are millionaires. So you know that's that's what I'm getting at. Maybe it makes more sense. We need to up the pay so that people don't have to be millionaires in order to be that to get into to office. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another good argument for campaign finance reform, too, uh, to make sure that people have comparable amounts of money to run for office so that uh, people you know, don't have a leg up just because they can write their own checks. And yeah, I think so often people get elected and the first thing they do is start making the phone calls for their next campaign. And it ought not be like that. Uh, we have such gridlock in Washington, D.C. We have... I don't think there's gridlock in Washington, D.C. at the moment. Well, single-party control isn't healthy for anyone. Yeah, uh, but, but it's not gridlock. 
Yeah, I think on some some things they're they can't just shoo things through. I mean, it seems like even the Republicans can't agree on all the issues. And you know, tonight they were on the television news, um, public television for that. <laughs> in case you need to know, uh, we're talking about uh, how how much money is in in politics it's now. An, and, it's amazing. It's mm-hmm. amazing. I think. Uh, oh, what was that? I mean, just at a, in a state level. Spending two million dollars to get into right. the legislature at a state level, right? What? Crazy. Yeah. And speaking of crazy, I think that's part of the problem with our system right now. Too many crazies. Too many crazies. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, when we have this sense of chaos all the time, um, you know, you can't. When I, I think back on my nursing career and and mm-hmm. how a body can't exist under constant stressful conditions for very long. And be healthy, mm-hmm. and I think the same is true for our our body politic. That we have to uh, take a break sometime. And what I worry about is that break is going to be not voting, disengaging from factual news, mm-hmm. uh, something that is more injurious to our system of government. But it's overwhelming. It's like how who's telling the truth? Uh, do we have enough information? Do we have too much information? Uh, our decisions being made behind closed doors, and it doesn't matter what the public thinks. Uh, when you're manipulating the system to one's advantage, whether it's gerrymandered uh, uh, electoral electoral districts, mm-hmm. or if it's um, you know stacking the courts with your your friends and buddies, or if it's choosing people not because of their capacity to do the job or their integrity, mm. but because you owe them a favor or they owe you a favor or you know something like that, it causes us to lose trust in our government. And that is m- more dangerous than anything. Uh, we saw it recently, I think, with the Kavanaugh hearings. Mm-hmm. And so, so what do you, what, extrapolate on that. So you think that's, that's obviously you think that's going on now. What uh, what um, what do you think should be done, or what 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 can be done? Is it just get out and vote? Get out and vote. Um, I do think making it easier for people to vote is really important, and we see our our system of voting under threat too. When voter um, uh, polls are are being purged, you know, so mm-hmm. that people who thought they were registered are not, or you have to show certain forms of ID that maybe are not something that you would routinely carry in some part of the country or within some cultural or ethnic group. I, I think we're seeing preference given to the controlling group now, and that's really dangerous for everyone. Diversity is where it's at. I think you, if we're going to be the strong country we have been over these many generations, we have to get back to this sense of civic responsibility, civic engagement, civic uh, education and awareness, and uh, showing up to to do our bit. So groups like the League of Women Voters are really important, I think, to our our democracy. Yeah, I, I would agree that, um, that yeah, the, the League of Women Voters is always out there, like trying to do b- debates, get all of the candidates on a forum, for, so anybody can go and and hear what they have to say. Um, yeah, that's that. Whoever however that came about. A plus, they they get, they get the check mark uh, for for doing a good good deed. Going back to, to the mayor thing, yeah. Uh, so, it, what was what was like your biggest accomplishment? Would you say as as a mayor? Mm-hmm. 
Gosh, that's a hard one. Um, I, I think just making government more accessible and and open to the public, you know, the things with just the compilation of things that we mm-hmm. did with the open mic sessions, every council meeting, uh, the open door policy, mm. um, you know, getting uh, the, the web management system up and running so mm-hmm. that we could actually have better um, virtual communication with the public, uh, issuing, you know, lots more press releases and things like that. So I think general transparency and accountability. There were a, a number of, of projects that we got done, a lot of programs that got started. Yeah, and over eight years. And kind of yeah, I mean, a really so big thing was establishing a position for a grants manager. Oh, wow. Uh, we didn't yeah. have one before, and that's brought in tens of, of millions of dollars well, to the yeah. city. That's that's essential for almost any nonprofit, I would imagine. You would think. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And that, had to, that was a new thing. Right. But nothing really stands out as like this. I mean, there's like no. That's that's a long term thing. I, I guess I'm. I, I guess like I'm thinking of one specific thing besides like public engagement. Is it laws that you? The city council passed a number of them. I mean, mm-hmm. we we established a human rights commission. We extended uh, insurance benefits to same sex domestic partners. Uh, we. Um, put in our the noise ordinance and the water conservation ordinance and, and that's the, light a, that, or, the lighting that, ordinance. The, those are both good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, good. I, yeah, because I mean, what is it? Ten o'clock? I think uh, you you can't be outside your domicile. Is that pretty close to the explanation of it? I believe. Oh, for noise? Yeah. Oh, it you know it could be any time of the day if it's annoying or incessant or something like that. But it's mm. so, usually. Uh, has to be loud enough. No, you you can be outside your domicile at, no, but, but after like, ten o'clock. No, no, not no. saying that you couldn't be yeah. outside, but oh. you can't have a band playing in your yard at ten o'clock at oh, night. Oh, right, that's true. That's true. Or yeah, have, and you notice that Rendezvous in the Park concerts have to close down and all of that. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, that's. I think that's a good thing. I think ten o'clock is definitely a reasonable hour. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, unless you're in college, then <laughs> you're going to bust that rule a little bit right. <laughs> once I, in a while. I used to be able to do that. Yes, I remember those days. Yeah, that was just in the car. Um, you were talking about um, how you cared for your mother as a nurse. So did you get your registered nurse or your uh, tell me about your nursing background a little bit? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's another kind of convoluted story. If I go back far enough, um, I, However uh, far back you, that's right. Yeah, you want to go. Yeah. Well, so I started out, um, I was at Boise State University as a pre-veterinary student. Oh. Um, that was my lifelong aspiration. And my dad, who was in ill health at the time, suggested that I might want more job security uh, before the duration of my education as a veterinarian. Mm. And he said, you know, you can become a registered nurse in pretty short order. You already have the the hard sciences down uh, mm. because of the pre-vet work. Uh, why don't you pursue that first, get that under your belt, and then you can always go back. And as things turned out, you know, life goes on. And I ended up uh, just embarking on a nursing career for quite you know, for 25 years or so. Oh, a nice long time. A long time, right. Um, Interestingly enough, I started out as a neurosurgical nurse in Boise at the beginning of my career. And when my mom was stricken ill, then 20 years later, uh, she required intense uh, round-the-clock care, including Mm. 
the kinds of skills I had as a neurosurgical nurse. And so it, I was grateful to have those skills so that she could stay at home until the end of her life. And my brother and I uh, cared for her there in Boise. Wow. So what, what happened to your mom, if you don't mind my asking? Oh, she had a kind of an undiagnosed um, degenerative neurologic condition. She had, she was up here visiting me and, uh, uh, I'd had some kind of surgery and she was supposed to be driving for me and she's just skimming the parked cars. And I said, Mom, you're kind of scaring me. And so we took her into the eye doctor thinking, you know, she needed glasses or something. And he identified that she had lost half of her visual field. So Whoa. one test led to another to another and they figured out that she had parietal lobe degeneration. And so it wasn't anything wrong with her eyes. It was the signal going to her brain. Uh, and they didn't know the reason for it. It turned out to be kind of progressive and really interesting from you know the scientific perspective, the biomedical perspective. She was... Um, uh, it started out pretty subtly, like I said, you know, not being aware of half of her visual field. But then it, it got around to where she didn't know how to use a fork or a toothbrush. She oh, couldn't man. figure out which was upside down, inside out, right side up. And oh. when I would help her to lie down to get into bed, she'd say, Nancy, I know I'm not falling, but I feel like I am. Oh. And so her proprioception was off. She, If she were to you know, be seated on the floor on a low chair, she might not be able to get up because her body couldn't tell her which way was up. Wow. And so that continued on until she, um, you know, required some assistance. And we did have, she had a living will, and that was really helpful to us. Uh, I think she may have changed her mind about her ultimate decision over the course of her illness. And by that time, she was almost nonverbal. So it, her, uh, her needs were great, but she giggled until the last day of her life. Um, you know, my brother would come home from work and uh, take her for rides every day in his big pickup truck, and she could hoist herself up there with the one arm that worked for her. And uh, she uh, she had joy. We'd take her out in the yard. You know, she was always well-groomed, and I think the best quality of life a person could have had uh, under those severe circumstances. And and that makes, I, you know, I guess of the things that I would chalk up as anything good I've done in my life, that's among them. Wow. Yeah. Getting to take care of uh, you know, your loved one to the end of life. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a great responsibility. Right. Yeah. I mean, she needed seizure management, so intravenous medication and tube feeding and total care. Uh, so, you know, it's a lesson to all of us that we have this huge baby boomer generation that is going to require some assistance. And I think while we're, uh, you know, my generation is is relatively active and capable now, uh, well, there will come a time when our society is going to have to address that. So early on, I think we need good quality housing for people who who want to stay in their own homes, but mm-hmm. they want to be close to entertainment and shopping and medical care, their friends, public transit, all those kinds of smart growth ideas. Uh, and we have very little of that housing stock, especially here in this area. Um, we, I think, are going to need places for recreation for adults, not just children's play fields. You know, we 
we want to be involved in community activities. So that's very important for how a community develops and what provisions we put in place. Same thing with the need for doctors. We're going to need a lot more of those and the mid-level professionals in the medical fields. Um, what kinds of care are we going to be able to provide to my generation, which is this huge bubble in the in the great scheme of things? And so you consider yourself in the um, baby boomer generation? I do. I was born in 1955. Okay, so when when does that when does it begin? When is it? When, what's the cutoff? For well, I think yeah, the, I think it uh, officially began right after the Second World War. Okay, it's so like um, 40. you know all of those military personnel came home and yeah. started making babies. Yeah, yeah. And our country uh, just had this great period of optimism and enthusiasm, and you know, remember the commercials about see the USA and your Chevrolet. Yeah, well, right. that yeah. that Chevrolet was always a big station wagon loaded with a bunch of kids, as I right. remember it. Yeah, I'm the youngest and, of seven, so mm-hmm, yeah. So uh, you know, went it went up probably. I would think into the maybe early 60s, hmm. you suppose? Uh, it could be, because yeah. I know that I, I was born in 67, mm-hmm. so I know I'm on the cusp of the mm-hmm. Gen X mm-hmm. thing. So that's mm-hmm. kind of, well, that's where I, my mind is a Gen X. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't consider myself part of a baby boomer, mm-hmm. anything, but, you know, age is relative. That's right. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I, I hate linear time. Linear time sucks. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> who invented that? Who invented linear time? I just, I dislike it immensely. Uh, why can't we just have just time? You get paid for doing the job and then you go away. Why'd I have to be there from eight to five? Who thought that there has to be this regimented linear time? It's yeah. It's horrible. And it, I think it's more common in the United States than in some other cultures too. Oh, I so I'm so jealous of, I really would like to, if I had my druthers, I'd go to Spain where I can <laughs> wake up, go to work, mm-hmm. have a long lunch, take a nap in the middle of the day, Yeah, you know, yeah. with a few glasses of wine and then at night go and have tapas and wine. And Well, my mom was one of those timeless, ageless people. And oh. so after she retired, my brother and I took her on a train tour of Europe. We got Eurail passes. We had two suitcases, carry-on bags mm-hmm. among the three of us. Oh, wow. And we took off for, I forget, five weeks or six, oh, something wow, what like a that. Time. It was terrific. And you mentioned Spain. So I remember having to you know, disembark from one train. And we, when we go into Spain, the gauge of the track narrowed down and this kind of rickety, clickety-clack <laughs> thing. And somebody had uh. chickens in the baggage <laughs> rack or something. Yeah. And uh, we get to this place out in the desert. I mean, it's a coastal place, but it was, you know, very dry and not a lot of vegetation. It was called Lampoya. And uh, we, my mom and brother and I all nod to each other and I, the train doors open. And so I disembarked and my mom and brother just stayed on the train and off they disappear into the sunset. And I'm in this place with my sixth grade Spanish education (laughs) and uh, it turned out to be siesta time. And so I am wandering around these neighborhoods and the the main streets <laughs> and everyone has the curtains pulled over their doorways and I can hear the TV show Dallas playing in the background <laughs> but people were sipping wine and taking their naps and it it went on for several hours um and by the time the train returned with my mom and brother on it. <laughs> I had made friends with a restaurateur who had a hotel there. And uh, we 
somehow we figured out my brother's uh, Spanish was, you know, the formal Castilian kind of thing. Uh. He was, he, he became quite proficient as that, at that as a high schooler, because when you're talking to your buddies on the telephone mm-hmm. in the household, you can have a secret of what you're talking about if your Spanish <laughs> is good enough. So he brought that Spanish language to our trip uh, that included Spain and uh, ordered this wonderful meal from these lovely people I'd met over just after their siesta mm-hmm. closed. And we had a delightful stay only by happenstance. You know, I, I think that the theme of my life is like seize serendipity or yeah, something like nice. that. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Well, you know, um, uh, I I often think of the the, the movie The Hobbit, or even in the book, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to happen once you go out your front door. Anything is possible, Mm -hmm. especially when you travel. You have to be open to to serendipity because anything can happen when you you travel the world. And if you're open to it. Uh, the right, travel, right. the journey is so much better if you're receptive to those sorts of things. The people who put on the blinders and full steam ahead, and I have three hours to spend in this place right. and 20 minutes there. Yeah. That I can't imagine traveling like that. You know, I met a guy, I, I, the long story, very short, is that uh, I, I traveled the Pacific Rim for seven months. And um, I met a guy in Hawaii who I re-met in Australia. And he was, I knew that he was on a world tour, a world trip. He's, after graduating from university, his parents bought him a world travel ticket. And so he was going literally circumferencing the world. But he would be like, yeah, I think he was in Australia for three days. So he got to Australia and he was like, he was in a rush. He's like, I gotta go, gotta do this. I'm like, Dude, why don't you come over here? Let's go over here. I found this cool place. Let's sit down and have a beer. Well, he would sit there and he would drink the beer really fast. He's like, let's go. Let's go see stuff. I'm like, I don't think you get it, man. I think you need to, you know, when I'm traveling, I'm usually, I stayed in places for about a month. Mm -hmm. And so you get to know the economy. You get to know people. You get to know a little bit about the politics a little bit. Then, you know, you get to know the place. But when you travel like that, you're just like, let's see it. Let's go. Right. Man, that's, that's, I just thinking about that makes my chest a little tight. (laughs) Did you travel from the time you were young? No, no, not at all. Um, I don't, I didn't, let's see. No, I, uh, I never traveled outside the United States until, geez, I was much older. I think the first time I went out of, I went to Canada when I was 26. And then uh, this long trip I took when I was um, late 30s. It was, a, I think about that. It was 2006. Oh, what a wonderful experience. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. The the long and short of it was I it was I sold I bought I had a house and I lost I, I lost my job. I was a computer network administrator for a telephone company in Ellensburg and I got downsized because, you know, there's not a lot of landlines in people's houses anymore. Isn't that a terrible phrase, downsized? When you're Down, talking about that's human really lives? Was. That's exactly what it was called. I, I got downsized. Uh-huh. Yeah. In 2006. So I lost my job. So I looked for other work, but, and a friend of mine said, you know, now's a good time to travel. So I just grabbed that, took it sold my house. And at the time I sold it in 2008, take that back. That was yeah, 2006. And that was at the height of the, uh, um, the housing craziness. And, uh, I sold it for a massive profit, um, nearly half again, what the house was worth when I originally purchased it, took that money and traveled the Pacific Rim for six months on that money came back. And that got me 
my job where I work now and got me married. Mm-hmm. So it was and worth it. where besides Hawaii and Australia did you go? Oh, I went to, started in Hawaii for three weeks, which was really awesome. Then I uh, went to Fiji, Australia, New Zealand, Thailand, and Japan. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. And then you travel all over Europe. Have, have you, are, are you a world traveler as well? I mean, have you been all over or do you travel a lot? Uh, I We haven't traveled in the last couple of years so much, but I've traveled abroad a number of times, and uh, including a, around Europe and uh, to Japan several times. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I don't know. I just I enjoy it. I have what my mom called itchy feet. You know, <laughs> I, I like meeting people where they live. Yeah. When I was just out of high school, I was one of these people-to-people student ambassadors. Oh, cool. And part of that trip took us to Russia, which was, so this was 1973. Oh, wow, yeah. Cold and, War. Yeah, it was very Iron interesting. Curtain. That's right. Um, but to be able to see... It was like stepping back into the 1940s or something. The appliances were old. The vehicles were old. The people were tremendous. They, But it was very guarded. Uh, I remember looking for a ladies' room in a, a big train station in Moscow. And uh, some kind of, they have leches every place, I guess. And this mm. guy came out of the, uh, you know, straight chase, uh, station to follow me. And the next thing I know, two police officers were right there and just kind of carried him away. The guy just disappeared instantly. So I was aware that we were being watched pretty closely while we were there. But um, we we visited pioneer youth camps to see the young communists in training, hmm. learning about those kinds of things. And um, it, it gave me an appreciation for the things we have, um, what different cultures value, and the young people who would speak with us privately and when they thought we you know were alone would say things like i can't how much they appreciated our culture they admired it they would like to understand it better they would like to visit the united states um they'd love to have had a passport <laughs> you know that kind yeah, of thing yeah uh, yeah so that was eye opening for me and i I'd, I'd like to go back to russia again to see how things have changed uh, maybe not in the near term, but within the next few years. But it seems more open. I mean, it seems like if you look at their culture, you look at the music, you look at the things they wear, like, I mean, jeans were a big deal back when with the Iron Curtain going on. And um, then Perestroika came about with uh, Gorbachev and Reagan and that whole area. And that things really did change. I mean, now people there can wear just about anything where jeans were like, Oh my God, where did you get Levi's? Right, you know, the great right. American symbol. And there's some real affluence among certain sectors in that society now too, mm-hmm. where they think nothing of dropping hundreds of dollars for a you know, French made belt or something like right. that, you know. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of a book my book club read just recently, and it was written by a former National Security Administration <laughs> officer who's family uh, originated in Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern Germany, and East Germany, sorry. Mm-hmm. And uh, her mother actually escaped and left her family behind. They they didn't want her to go, uh, but she wanted a, a 
start, a new start in, yeah. in the Western U.S. and uh, left it at great peril. I mean, she was captured one time in trying to cross the border and um, finally made it over, over the mountains and ended up in uh, West Berlin for a time. But it was just a, a lifestyle that it's really hard to comprehend that people yeah. are getting killed and they're ratting out their friends and neighbors. Uh, this woman's grandfather had been a teacher and a very well-regarded leader in their town. And uh, he lost his job. He was uh, threatened by the government. People would go missing. Uh, Things that I didn't realize when I was in Russia, for example, in 1973, mm -hmm. and we did visit, we saw East Berlin as well, uh, to see that and to not realize that the Cold War was still on. Crazy. Uh, crazy. Uh, and just to think that, you know, that uh, at one time that Berlin itself was divided and then there was a section of Berlin that was under communist rule mm -hmm. just that section mm -hmm. right and it's just and, and you know who'd have thought you know in, when did the berlin wall fall was it 89 something like that is that close or, no 87 was it 70 oh, no let's see reagan was that reagan in office oh, Ra oh okay so that's earlier than that uh. Oh, oh, we should oh, know well. this. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> you can splice that. <laughs> Cut that out of there. Cut that right, out. Okay, yeah. All then. right, gone, gone, gone. <laughs> yeah, intelligent answer here. <laughs> the intelligent answer is East Berlin. Government officials opened it up in 1989, but demolition officially began in June of 1990, and it finished in 1992. Uh, but um, then it's like, who would have thought at the time that, now, Germany is one of the world powers, especially in Europe, where, you know, they they have a lot of money, especially in 2008, where they were basically holding up the European economy with their their wealth, mm -hmm. you know, to think that's what Germany came from after the unification of East and West Berlin. Um, just the way the world works. Well, it was night and day to look across that Berlin Wall and see East Berlin looking still bombed out and gray, desolate, nobody on the streets except armed guards, you know, who were defending their way of life. Mm -hmm. And there was such hope for, for communism. Um, people still believed. And when you think about governments being able to brainwash people who are intelligent and compassionate and all of that, it can happen anywhere, including here. So I think vigilance is very important. It's so easy to let our guards down to be become complacent and not be aware that bad things can happen even in industrialized nations. Yeah, uh, well, you know, and it's, it seems like that something like that might be happening with uh, um, social media. When I'm getting at um, with uh, the Russians and saying uh, with how they're trying to manipulate how, what we are perceiving as reality. Mm -hmm. It's it's mind blowing. It is. And how do you determine that's you know that's fake? Right. How do you turn that 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 thing on Twitter was not written by a person, mm -hmm. or you know, or maybe a person, but um, that is a fake account. You know, it's it's. 
It's tough times to, to figure it out. Yeah. Well, I told you I was over at WSU earlier today, and right. I spoke with a Microsoft executive at, who works in uh, information systems. And mm. he he works in the security side of things and was suggesting that you might I, – I think opting in for allowing release of, of personal data – uh, even metadata is, ought to be the way to go, but there's some discussion about uh, an opt-out system or a, a subscription service where you pay, you know, two dollars a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the big uh, tech companies are trying to figure out solutions to this to protect users. I, I just think w- when I was in uh, junior high, I was in at Cupertino Junior High in California, and Steve Jobs was a classmate there. And my, I remember my dad saying, oh, this computer stuff is a flash in the pan. It'll never go anywhere. Wow. It's an overpopulated <laughs> thing, right? And this was like 1967, 68, you know. Okay. Uh, and obviously that wasn't the case. So the technology has grown exponentially. But the founders of it, the people who envisioned it, were optimists. They were, they believed in the best in humanity and that communication in all of its forms is is the best policy, the best practice. And now we find out that there's a dark side to human behavior too, and, and it can show up in virtual technology. So how do we protect ourselves from such a wonderful resource as the internet, for example? Yeah, amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. it, I wouldn't say the some people say if it's not on the internet, it doesn't exist. Um, because anymore, people, how, how often do people go to the library? A friend of mine once said, you know, uh, before you, you had your, your phone or you had the, you could Google just about anything. He said, you're only as dumb as the nearest library. Now you're only as dumb as what Google tells you or, you know, what you find on the internet, it seems. I still love libraries, though. Oh, yeah. Do don't get me wrong. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yes. But in, anymore, you don't have to go to the library to research a topic mm-hmm. to get information on how do I build a wall? Let's, you know, look at a YouTube video anymore. Right. right. Exactly. And I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm, I love technology. I think mm-hmm. you, you, you have to go forward. So you either like what's happening now or you're just Luddite. You just, why hate what's happening? You've got to embrace it and try to move forward with it. Otherwise, you're just stuck. Right. And keep your security systems up to date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Who knows, though? I mean, it, it, cause I, I just recently put up new, a new, um, uh, Wi-Fi network in my house. Mm-hmm. So, at at what point do you need, are you secure enough? How do you know? I mean, you're just some. I'm just a guy in the middle of in you know middle America uh, with with internet. What is it that people want from me? What could they want from me? But you also, I know that my brother, for example, had his uh, his uh, information stolen, his identity taken. And then you know that could happen to anyone at any time. It, you hear it all the time about security breaches at places. So you can only do so much. Right. Yeah, I had my identity stolen from the University of Idaho, and uh, where I am um, sometimes employed. Mm-hmm. And uh, they suggested that we report to the three major credit agencies, w- which I did. And then the Equifax breach started, <laughs> happened. <laughs> right. So it got stolen again. And I, 
I don't know. I just wait and see if somebody, you know, charges a bunch of stuff on a credit card or, uh, you know, tries to uh, use my credit rating to to buy something big. Yeah, and huh. and it's just a and if if they do and they take your identity and then they start getting a. I don't know, just really start messing with everything that associated mm-hmm. with your name. Like social security. Social security, mm-hmm. you know, that's uh, the boy, what a mess. Right. What do you do? I mean, I, 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 I know that there are people out there. You know, here's, here's something that really bothers me is that if like there's a data breach and they say, okay, your name or your information was uh, accessed. They say, go to this other company, this third party company and give them your information. That to me just seems, I don't get that. So it's okay for me to now go to a third party to give them all of my information, that which spreads out how much information is out there. That doesn't make any sense to me. I, that's it. That's, <laughs> that's my <laughs> little rant right. on, on, yeah. on, 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 on protecting your identity. Yeah, go to this place that will protect your identity if they don't get breached. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know about protecting your identity, but they notify you after it's been taken again. <laughs> so at least you know about it, right? Thanks. Yeah. Thanks after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, you know, you, I, I'm thinking now of like, uh, I just, we're talking about security, and that suddenly got me to the White House, and you actually went to the White House. I did. Yeah. But, tell me about that. Tell me, like, how did you go there? Why did you go there? Uh, well, let's see, it would have been uh, 2013, I think. Um, I was uh, on the board of directors for the National League of Cities. I'd been pretty involved in in those um, affairs there, you know, in, in kind of prominent roles here and there. So people knew my name, they knew mm-hmm. my reputation. Mm-hmm. And I got a phone call, oh, I think it was shortly before, maybe it was on the 4th of July. I can't remember that mm-hmm. year. And somebody from the National League of Cities said, uh, would I uh, be willing, would I like to introduce Mrs. Obama at a Let's Move event? Uh, Moscow has been really involved with youth health and recreation kinds of activities. And so we were a model for the nation in many ways. And so really? They, Moscow, Idaho. That's right. Model for the nation. Go Yay, us. Hey, there you go. <laughs> yeah. um, and so they asked me to come in and speak a little, brag a little bit about Moscow and talk about the National League of Cities interest in the Let's Move initiative, which was Mrs. Obama's um, primary focus to try to help children eat healthy foods and, and lead healthy, active lifestyles. Uh, so... It was my privilege to introduce her at a White House event. You got to introduce her. I did. Wow. How, I mean, what do you? How, it, the, the, I, I'm like, what do? You, where do you even start with that? Mm. You know, she was such a, a gracious person, so easy to talk to. We had a chance to kind of just schmooze uh, before <laughs> the event, mm-hmm. and a chance to visit a little bit afterward. And she's warm and genuine and intelligent and i was it was such a, an honor to have a chance to meet her and you know she's I, I she reached over and gave me a hug it was just terrific to to know that we the people can have that close of contact with our 
highest ranking officials in the United States. I mean, I think the first lady is right up there. Oh, totally. Yeah. Nobody else has more influence. <laughs> really? You know? that's, that's what her husband would sometimes <laughs> yeah. say. That's right. right. Yeah. Well, she was definitely confident in the public's eye. Uh, she was very capable as a lawyer herself, um, mm. but as a mom, as a spouse, as a, a daughter, uh, she was very grounded. And I, I think that made the Obamas so much more accessible than other people in their position might might sometimes be. I one of my favorite things was when they would host those music events in the mm. White House. Did yeah. you ever watch those? They'd yeah. have these just world-renowned stars on that little bitty stage and this small audience there. What a great thing for our country to celebrate the arts and that performing arts in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely a fan of the arts. Um, you, you, you know, there was a there was a one of my professors in college asked, he was a psychological, uh, psychology professor, and he asked, he said, how important is art to you in, um, at the university? And so we had a discussion about how important it was for art in general. And he says, okay, I want you to tell me where there is a piece of art. People had to struggle to think about where that art was. But that is, I think, part of what makes art great is it doesn't have to be so so obvious. It is basically part of your periphery that enhances what you see in day-to-day basis. I love art. I mean, look at this, this room full of art. Right, and art isn't just one thing, um, as you know. I mean, it's so... Is manifest in so many different ways. And if you look around Moscow, Moscow's moniker is Heart of the Arts. Yeah. And, and doesn't it, like a certain percentage of the town revenue or something it, as to good arts? Yeah. 1% of the, the uh, city's investment in public works projects oh. is dedicated to the arts. That was something else that we did well, when I was in office. Oh, and uh, I think well, that makes that, a lot of sense. So you're going to call yourself the heart of the arts. That's you'd think. And we did the first public art installation, that Helioterra down there oh, at yeah. the South Couplet. A wonderful artist by the name of Robert Horner, who's from uh, Port Townsend, came over. And he did this. Uh, uh, it's compacted earth. So that that And different colored earth. That's right. It's kind of in a, what is it? It's in the shape of some kind of a seed, isn't it? It's a seed pod. That's yeah. right. And his description of why he chose that form, uh, why he placed it where he did, uh, how it relates to the, the rays of the sun at different times of the year, it was so compelling. Uh, and, you know, he's a true artist to envision something and then to have the technical skill, the engineering skill to, to pull that off. The, uh, te- and it's still standing. It's yeah. still standing, but the technique is what they built the Great Wall of China with. So that's, you really? know, most of that's still standing, too. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. Wow. Yeah, because I, I, I like that thing because now it also changes color depending on the time of day. Mm-hmm. Some, some parts of it, because it's layered as well, the parts of it are different colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a great, that's a great installation. Yeah, I'm glad you like it. Yeah. And hopefully we'll see a lot more of that. But even if you look at the the tree grates around town or the some of the benches or different kind of unexpected places, the wraps around the utility boxes yeah. or, or some of the bus shelters have etching on the glass. I mean, really different places where you can incorporate art 
And then, of course, the performing arts are a big piece of this, too. And I think we all need to do our bit to help support endeavors like Rendezvous in the Park or the Jazz Festival uh, or the University of Idaho Theater Arts Program, all, all these different sorts of things, sporting arts in the schools. Uh, it, I'm a firm, I'm, I've been trained in the sciences, uh, but I also know that art is what connects us in our humanity. Uh, we, if we go into scientific fields, we might use the arts for communication, uh, trying to to make something clearer to the lay audience or to the non-scientific audience. Mm -hmm. We might use art for respite when we take a break from some really intense uh, job obligations we have. Um, but the arts do so many things for us that that I think for as little funding as they sometimes get, um, we could do better. Yeah, it's so tough. Um, you know, and, and art supplies aren't cheap. Um, you know, I was telling, a, I met a guy recently in Ellensburg, and he does uh, street art, is what he says. Uh, mainly he does with uh, spray paint, um, but he also works on canvas. Like, you mean three in the morning spray painting, sort of graffiti style or something he, different? Well, it, it is graffiti style, but his, 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 um, oh, his medium is, is basically spray paint. And that's where he started was, was spray painting on walls, actually does things on canvas, but it is done with still with spray paint. Mm -hmm. And, and I said, man, you are so brave. I think be, living a life as an artist is a very brave thing. And he's like, not, it's not, not as brave as what you do. And I, you know, I talk on the radio for, because that's not something a lot of people like to do is talk in front of people. It's one of the biggest fears in the planet. And he says, it's not as difficult as that. I'm like, no, no, no. To live a life of art and to compel yourself to make art and to put your soul into that thing, that's bravery to me. Mm -hmm. I have, have a stepson who is a musician and uh, his former wife is also a professional musician. Wow. And they have a daughter who boycotted the first grade. Uh, my, my granddaughter said, uh, I'm not going back. I want you to enroll me in the arts school, arts magnet school. And this was in Portland. This is, and, a, this is a one year old, a first grader said this. First grader. Well, okay. And her professional musician parents said, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they did that. And then she ended up going to the Vancouver School for Arts and Academics. And so her dad had to move across the state line to make sure she was eligible to attend a school in Washington. Huh. And then she went on to uh, uh, the Berklee College of Music in Boston. Wow. And she knew how hard it was to, to put together a career in music. Her, she witnessed both of her parents patching together teaching jobs and private lessons and, uh, you know, concerts and, uh, you know, being involved with it different ballet, the Port, you know, Portland Symphony and yeah. Ballet Opera, those kinds of things, going mm. to the uh, festivals along the coast. I mean, it's not easy, but when it's in your bones, you have to do it. And that's what she said, too. So she's a cellist and composer, and I, I hope I hope she does that. You know, when, did you see the uh, the Portland uh, Cello Project when they were here at the Kenworthy I a few not. weeks ago? I did not, no. Just terrific. And I, I spoke with one of the co-founders of that group. And he said, well, I've been doing this like 
42 years or something like that. Wow. I mean, I think since he was a child. Mm-hmm. And he said, I, I can't do anything else. I have to do this. And so even for people who rise to a high level of performance, it's it's almost like not a choice for them because they just have to make music. And I love being around that kind of energy. Yeah, you know, um, even just to local musicians who have that same kind of verve, it's, uh, yeah, it's something to behold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I never, I, I've never, are you, can you play an instrument? Um, I, pr- well, it, I'd have to practice a lot. I spent yeah. a lot of years in school bands, you know, with uh, clarinet and saxophone and French horn. But uh, these days I've, uh, I've confined myself to claves in the Moscow Peace Band. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, like I used to say, I can play the radio and that's about <laughs> That's about it. I, I, I mess around with a juice harp once in a while, too, but that's it. I, I never could figure those out. I think they'd be really bad for your teeth. Oh, no, it's, you basically you hold it within your teeth, mm-hmm. it's, and then um, you use the, uh, the cavity of your mouth to, make or, to change the pitch. By closing in your mouth, you make a higher pitch. By opening up, you make a... a, a, a uh, a lower pitch and um and yeah and then you just twang it you know twang twang right. twang yeah yeah, yeah. Wow. it's not as it's not as it's not that difficult <laughs> okay <laughs> that's, that's okay. why i can do it <laughs> okay so on a scale of one to ten and relative to a kazoo where would you put this right yeah, <laughs> yeah it's uh, maybe a little more difficult than a kazoo i mean if you can hum mm-hmm. you, you can do a kazoo so okay. but it's it's on that scale i think the, the it might take a little more uh, coordination, because you have to pull pull it with a uh, one hand. If mm-hmm. I had it one here, I'd show you. But uh-huh. I'd pull it with one hand, like the the, the little metal bit, because it's all mm-hmm. metal. There's right. a little wire that goes in the middle, and then you just pull that, and then because it goes wong, and then right. so you use your mouth to change the pitch. Yeah, I well, I think I own one. I just never figured out how to play it. Yeah, just hold it between your teeth. You mm-hmm. don't just just you don't have to clamp down on it. Just hold it there, and then. Open oh. your mouth and that YouTube the video. <laughs> okay, uh, right. Okay, well, yeah. Peace Band, watch out. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in the Peace Band, and that's that's the it's it's not like like a P I E C. It's it's P E A C. The Peace Indeed. Band. Indeed, yeah. And it's been going on for a quite a while too. Peace is more fun, is what Fritz Nor always tells us. <laughs> is that the is that the conductor? Mm-hmm. Yes. How long has that been going on? Do you know? I, I don't. I mean, I think the Peace Band must have always been here. It's like homegrown something, you know. Yeah, could be. Uh, my, uh, you know, Bruce Bradbury, then, I assume. Yes. Because I know he's in that band. I yeah. used to work with him as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, uh, aren't you, and then they're playing, you guys are playing uh, Saturday, I believe, right? Don't you right. usually go down the, for the parade? That's right, for marching the, in the homecoming parade. Yeah, University mm-hmm. of Idaho homecoming parade. Mm-hmm. Right, excited about that is that like the next best thing to being mayor <laughs> instead of well, being in a car going down a parade and waving it oh well the johnson parade is a hoot too and the peace yeah. band is always in that yeah and the, you too could be in the johnson parade i think the only requirement is that you show up <laughs> that's a one, wonderful event hey you know i've never been to that <gasps> oh you must go i do yeah, i know yeah. so i remember I knew the people who started it as kids. Mm. Their mother, uh, this is, as rumor goes anyway, mm-hmm. one, the, one of the Druffles uh, said, 
the kids were complaining about being bored one day. And she said, well, go out in the street and march up and down the street, you know, make your own parade. And so these boys did that, and that supposedly grew into the Johnson Parade. I don't know if that is really true, but I know that family, and it's believable to me. I love um, that story. Yeah. But the you know the border Highlanders show up in their plaid bus to to march with the pipes, and they have all these uh, wonderful uh, farm creations, you know, for uh, that it welded together kind of stuff. And it's just a great hooch. It's an out and back route, and uh, people from all over the region come to watch that. And where is that? Uh, where's Johnson? Yeah. Um, well, let's see. If you went into Pullman and turned off, you know, where Johnson Road is out of Pullman, you take Bishop okay. Bishop until, Boulevard oh, to Johnson it, Road right. and you drive out that way. Like you, you so will heads, run right into south, Johnson. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So you, did you come with ideas that you wanted to discuss or anything in particular? Mm, not not really. I mean, I was curious to know what it was that uh, you wanted to talk about or what you wanted to learn about me. I, I'm getting a chance to get to know a little bit about you, yeah. too, which is fun. Yeah. And uh, I've been working with some whammy medical students. I don't know what whammy stands what, for. What, it stands for Washington, Wyoming, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho. It's been going what a combo. On, I know. It's been going on for about 45 years or so mm-hmm. with uh, the University of Washington as the parent institution to allow certain numbers of students from those states I mentioned to enroll in medical school through, you know, at an affordable price, since not all of those states have medical schools. Um, and now Washington State University also is starting a new medical school. They're looking to establish some residencies. Um, for, I think, yeah, I think that, that was it. I think mm-hmm. that was it. They right. just got accreditation for residency. Is that how I, that works? I, I, Something along those lines. Right, right. Yeah, and that's going to be competition, I think, for the Whammy students, too. So I hope that they can work closely together. It's just vitally important to all of our region where we need physicians so badly, especially in fields like family practice and internal medicine and obstetrics and gynecology. One of the other advantages we have here is that Washington State University has the College of Veterinary Medicine and the School for Global Animal Health. And I've been involved with this international organization called the One Health Initiative that ties together human, animal, and environmental health. So to have the resource of these two... Okay, just hold on a second. Okay, so, So it's human, animal, and environmental health. Correct. So that's 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 everything. It it kind of is, you know, when you think about, um, say, toxins in the water supply, and you might see um, populations of fish uh, mm-hmm. die. What does and then humans are eating some of these fish, right? Mm-hmm. Or you might see the contributions of uh, of uh, agricultural products like fertilizers uh, with the effect called eutrophication, um, putting nutrients, overloading nutrients that cause uh, algae blooms. Hmm. And some of the algal blooms can create uh, toxins in the water, which can kill um, animals and uh, skin irritant. And, you know, it has some wider complications. You certainly wouldn't want to swim in that or drink it or uh, you know, let your your dog get in it or anything mm-hmm. like that. 
So, you know, we when we see environmental contamination problems, we also worry about the health effects of those kinds of things. Uh, climate change, you know, you see the effects of the environment influencing uh, availability of foodstuffs or uh, the availability of water for populations of people and maybe the food animals that they would otherwise produce, you know. So it's a big coalition of people who work in medical fields, uh, physicians, veterinarians, and environmental scientists all around the world trying to say, when you evaluate a situation, look at the big picture. Don't just work on your particular focus. Think more broadly. And because we have the College of Veterinary Medicine and the School for Global Animal Health just across the border, we have this wonderful chance to tie together human and veterinary medicine. And then with the environmental scientists on both campuses, I think it's really an ideal circumstance for us to grow some jobs, grow some solutions for the world, even in this small place on the Palouse. So, um, and this is something that's right up your alley because you were a vet, you wanted to be a vet, then you became a, a nurse. I'm married to a veterinarian. Um, and then you also an environmentalist where you've got environmental, uh, science in your background. So mm-hmm. this, is this something you created or was already going? No, it, it, it was going already. I, I wrote to them and probably, oh, somewhere in the mid two thousands, I guess, um, I was reading one of my husband's veterinary journals, and there was an article about uh, cyanobacteria in a blue-green algae uh, bloom in California, and they were first seeing uh, 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 sea otter health compromised and wondering what was going on with hmm. this. And then they started to realize that it was in the, concentrating in the shellfish, in the bivalves in, in Monterey Bay. And so then, you know, The concern, of course, is are you going to kill off that, um, you know, the fishery or are you going to poison people or what are you going to, what are the circumstances? And it was first identified in animals there. So anyway, I wrote to this, the authors of this article that I read in this veterinary journal and they responded to me and then they put me on their advisory board. So I... uh, I'm really honored to be part of that, and I'm so inspired by the good work going on in so many places around the world. So I hope that our our new uh, College of Medicine at WSU is part of that, and I hope that, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, the University of Washington does have a center for One Health. Uh, one of one of my friends actually uh, founded that center there. Um, and he left his job at Yale Medical School to come out and to, he was a whammy student. Hmm. So he knew the University of Washington and his dream job was to do just exactly what he's doing now. Huh. So you're, the, so the idea is to get whammy associated with One Health. Is that what you're, is that kind well, of Well, they already you? are because oh, the see. University of Washington is the, the parent institution for, um, for this whammy program for medical education and the university of Washington also has a center for one health on its campus. So they, they get it. And I think we, and they're also connected to WSU because they've been working together with the, the Paul G Allen school for global animal health over there, Mm -hmm. you know, trying, trying to eradicate rabies, for example, uh, when, you know, they're working in places like Tanzania and Kenya, uh, 
places, you know, we sort of take this for granted, although we may not. I just read in today's news that uh, a rabid raccoon bit three people and two pets in Washington, D.C., in a neighborhood. So maybe when it's that close to home, when we see a disease that we don't always relate to the United States, uh, we realize how, how close that could be. Wow. You, you know, I do. You just I don't hear about rabies very often. I wonder how mm-hmm. much, how often it comes about in uh, at veteran at veterinarians. Do you we hear about it, them? We see it in in wildlife in certain parts of the country, and you know, populations of foxes or skunks or raccoons. Um, but our domestic animals are required. You know, dogs and cats are, are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So we don't see it so much in this country, but in other parts of the world, it's a very serious problem. Um, I just recently attended a, a fascinating talk and uh, at the University of Idaho. They had a, a, a guest speaker talking about rabies in India and how many thousands of people are, die of that disease every year. Oh. It's like, Wow. And I hear it's not pleasant. Right. Yeah. You know, when I was a neurosurgical nurse in Boise, uh, we we had a patient who had just had a corneal transplant, and she came in with an undiagnosed neurologic condition and quickly went downhill and, and eventually died. And it turned out that she had rabies, and that was one of the first cases. She contracted it from the corneal transplant. So now, uh, when if somebody dies of a non uh, an undiagnosed neurologic condition, they don't harvest the organs because of the risk for something a communicable disease like that, or zoonotic disease. Wow! But if somebody doesn't give organs, nobody will get them, you know, except through the black market. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, figure black market. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I'll think of that one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Black market organs, you know, you hear about mm. people waking up with uh, stitches in their side in a, in a tub of ice. Yeah. Or missing a kidney, you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a very real thing. Right. Um, or trying to, you know, keep your family fed by selling some body part that somebody might want. There was a, just a, an article I read about how um, uh, people are coming from China who have been in prison. And they take prisoners and they basically take the prisoner's organs um, and give them to people in need, generally who are in the... Uh, these the, are the redundant organs? I mean, this is like if you have two kidneys, they right, take right. one. And, so or, they, they don't kill these people. They're, or sometimes they kill the people. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, yikes. In order to, to, to take their organs. and then Where did you find that? Where did you hear about this? Oh, boy. I'm, I don't remember. I w- but... You know, I I want to say I wish I could tell you exactly where I saw it, but mm-hmm. on the internet it could be it could be false. I mean, no, no, I want to say it's probably <laughs> if it's on the internet. Oh, come on, Tom. You, you know, know. <laughs> it, it could be. You know, it could be real. It could be fake. But I want to say like Washington Post, New York Times, and a quick check on the internet. PBS has a great story about this. PBS.org. Yeah, I still like my newspapers. I'm you know, subscribe to a couple of them in print and into the New New York Times online. Mm-hmm. And occasionally I'll pick up Washington Post. Um, I think that's important. I still like going to our independent bookstore downtown to book people. Yeah. Um, you know, I mentioned still enjoying going to the library. So, uh, you know, it's the print things that are going to persist. I, you know, the years of 
of uh, doing archaeology, you know, the idea that you can handle some tangible evidence of our past uh, is a reminder. And if something is virtual, how long will that last? This, the storage of, you know, first it was floppy disks and then CDs and, you know, now USB drives or uh, the cloud. Uh, the cloud what, like, yeah, yeah. What, where is the cloud? Uh, yeah, it's everywhere. Yikes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And when will it run out of space? And if it doesn't, then why not? You know, uh, what happens you know, when, I, I don't know. Server farms are what they're called. So mm-hmm. do you know what I'm talking about? I Sir? do. Okay, yes, yeah. yeah. So when so you just get more server farms, just mm-hmm. more data. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 nuts. I yeah. I have a hard time. I like things. I mean like right behind you. I've got all my CDs there. Mm-hmm. I like right. I like that, but I grew up in that era, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Anymore kids nowadays, they you know, you go online, you can hear all the music you ever want to hear with a, you know, pay 5 bucks a month. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the first time I ever heard of the cloud was from Eric Garcetti, who's the mayor of Los Angeles, mm. and he was all for putting the whole city on the in the cloud. You know, all it's hugely expensive and and space intensive to try to store all the stuff. Cities, mm-hmm. local governments have oh, to I keep can track only imagine. of. And Los Angeles would be one of the worst, most difficult. And so he was very forward thinking in pursuing that. Um, yeah, and then you know you also don't need to buy more um, hard drives to keep store of that data, unless unless you are your own cloud, right? And this is where you kind of get going back to politics a bit. Where where is the fine line between where the, the what the government is supposed to take care of and mm-hmm. what can be uh, sold out to a third party, well, especially government information? That's right. That's right. Where do you go with that? Yeah, I you know certain things I think government should control. I I don't favor privatization of water supplies, for example, or or sewage systems, um, sanitation kinds of things. Uh, I just think they're they're vital to sustaining life. And if they're privatized, then you're at the mercy of somebody who is interested in earning a profit off of those things that should be available to all the people. And uh, not just those who have enough money to afford it. So I wonder if aspects of information technology ought to be the same as life-sustaining kinds of things. I mean, I think the private sector does tremendous good work. Mm-hmm. And there are places where um, some of the the transportation infrastructure has been really helped by private sector investment. But I, I think, you know, water... And sanitation are too important. I think med- energy is another one that I've always been kind of skeptical of of, of being a private sector. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what happens with this Avista thing. You know, whether uh, uh, being they, sold to they, a private to Cana- company, to and, Canadian company. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that Canadian company is that. That's a private entity. Is it I, uh, I publicly so. traded, or I mean, some it's it's its own business. It's not a Canadian. It's not a governmental entity. Yeah, got it. Yeah, because power is such an important thing to everything. I mean, we're we're sitting in light, and we're 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 using electronic pieces of equipment to do this uh, podcast thing. So without that, uh, where would we be without electricity tomorrow? Well, they just saw this in was it Calistoga County or someplace? They had above ground 
high high power wires and they had some problems with high winds down there and some of those power lines came down started some really serious fires so this last week they actually shut down the power grid the power company shut it down voluntarily um, because they were afraid about sparking more fires with these high winds and the people who lived there were suddenly without power uh, unless they had you know generators or something like that so we and then when you think about uh, climate change and water supplies, so if you rely on hydropower, uh, what are the implications if somebody needs water for agriculture or for, uh, you know, so irrigation or for potable water supplies? Um, what does it mean for hydropower? Uh, it's all woven together in, in significant ways. And I think we are going to start to see more strains as our whole world is stressed by climate change and what it means for if people are hungry or thirsty um, or or desperate, they will react in, in sometimes unpredictable ways. It blows me away that people can think that it doesn't exist or that climate change is some kind of a hoax. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the, the data is real. You either, I, I just, I, I really find it difficult that are you... It's like you're not you really using your brain in to look at the facts to that is it's the data. I mean, the data is the data. Mm-hmm. And there are multiple people who have who have denied it, said, no, no, let me let, let me do my own study, mm-hmm. have done their own study and said, oh, well, the climate is changing. Right. <laughs> you know, right. things are warming up a bit. You know, the, the well, water is rising because mm-hmm. the the polar ice caps are melting. Mm-hmm. Um and, and the yeah. weather extremes we're seeing now, uh, scientists have been so careful to not overreact, to not uh, step out of the realm of being dispassionate, objective, um, you know, followers of the scientific method. But I think so more tough. and more needing to become advocates. I mean, I did that. I kind of stepped to the dark side by going into politics. But <laughs> when you, t- but to take the you know scientific knowledge and say, look. This is really serious, and mm-hmm. and I'm I marvel that some people will say, oh yeah, we have, you know, eight years, or we have eighteen years, or we have twenty two years before this happens, or we can go up to half a degree Celsius, or we can go up to one degree Celsius, and it's like I don't think anybody exactly knows because the whole the systems are so complex, the way these th- different things work together about ocean temperatures and solar exposure and reflectivity and engineered solutions uh, to help remedy this or uh, CO2 capture or sequestration or, you know, somebody, I'm terrified to see the erosion of the Environmental Protection Agency and environmental laws that would require vehicles to be more efficient or to invest in um, public transit or renewable energy technology, these things that it will have long lasting effects. And I'm really not buying it when some of these models will say this is how many years we have left before it's doom and gloom. Uh, I think the the evidence is clear that we have to act immediately and aggressively if we're going to save our species. The changes in um, the trajectory of climate change are like we haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's clearly tied to the industrial era. Um, The more fossil fuels we burn, the more 
uh, the temperature rises and then all this sort of domino effect of things uh, is com- it compounds the problem. Uh, so I, I think we have, we have people running for office in our own backyard here who will say that climate change is a hoax or some one candidate I know knows better is fearful apparently of of overstepping the party platform and so kind of equivocates on this and if you want students to have quality education in our schools and you don't want to teach about climate change because it's like new science or something that's not the case yeah well they've been like um they've been studying climate change or the, the climate or just the atmosphere for hundreds of years like as soon as they're able to capture under a glass dome an air sample mm-hmm. like how much how much then, then you can quantify what's in it is there helium in it is there how much oxygen right i mean it's been you've been able to do this for centuries well in the ice cores that they're dredging up now right. really are pulling out now are, are very informative to the scientists so um you know it these are going to be really challenging times ahead and uh when we live in university communities like this, we have so many opportunities to learn from experts in all the related fields, uh, including policy and economics that will be parts of the solution. So engineering is part of it. It's not just environmental scientists and climate scientists. It's, it's engineers and it's economists. And, you know, the Citizens Climate Lobby is working on, on uh, carbon fees to try to, to put a fair price on, on carbon because right now it's kind of this out of sight, out of mind thing. We've done the same thing with recycling. You know, now everybody's mad at China because they don't want to take our recyclables anymore. But it's like, why don't we want to deal with our own stuff? We have, we're such a throwaway society. So, you know, maybe we, we want to have different practices of consumerism. And maybe there are job opportunities and profit opportunities in that. You know, instead of sending our stuff on a barge across an ocean to get to contaminate somebody else's place. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. You know, why why aren't we taking care of that ourselves? I mean, how how self sufficient should we be, or do we want to be? I mean, when it's we're sending garbage basically to another country. That's weird. Well, or we're throwing away things that are perfectly serviceable or could be repurposed into something or reused or, you know, there we, uh, I think plastic is a terrific product. Uh, We, you know, use it so much in the medical field. We rely on it, but we don't need single use uh, glassware in every setting or, you know, plasticware or utensils or straws or some of those things. The, the plastic contamination in our oceans and in our fish, uh, fisheries and, uh, you know, so sea life gets it and then it gets into all the whole food chain. And, uh, and plastic often will mimic um, estrogen. Uh, so we get buildup of estrogenic compounds um, and affects the reproductive systems. Uh, when we think about you know, transgender fish or something downstream from a wastewater treatment plant, we don't necessarily say, oh, people are next. And people probably aren't immediately next, but somewhere along the line, 
um, the stuff we throw into our water supplies or into our soil will come back and, and get us. So I put out my recycling tonight, and it's like um, I have to pay closer attention to what plastics are in there because mm-hmm. the the city of Moscow actually has had to step back and say, yeah, we're no longer taking the, the single stream uh, concentration that we did before. Yeah, and then that's not easy as a city either because that, that's a lot more work that has to be done on, on somebody's end to separate that out. Right. One of the problems, though, is that the we, the ratepayers pay somebody else to do that. We ship it away, out of sight, out of mind, and we don't really think about, you know, that package of cookies we buy in the store is triple wrapped in something. Why is that? Do we need that? Or do we need a fresh grocery bag every time we go into the store? Could we carry, you know, carry some things? I I mean, it's very doable, and it's just second nature in so many parts of the world. Um, But we've had such an abundance of of space and resources in this country, you know, we're we're still young and we're still the wild west out here. And these, you know, the independence that we exert, um, it doesn't have to be painful to try to to be more conservative in uh, in our practices of consumerism. Hmm. Yeah. Well, like you, you just think about the products that you buy just normally, mm-hmm. um, and there also there was something about micro plastics as well it's in the air like there's so much plastic being used that it's everywhere everywhere right so the it, if it eventually breaks down it breaks into smaller and smaller particles and they i where did they show this on the tv news recently people were picking out tiny little rice-sized grains of plastic out of a rocky coastline mm-hmm. because the the currents were such that it just always is washing this up onto their shores, um, you know, or that great floating garbage patch that we, we hear about sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. the, what is it? The size of New York? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And I think it's New York, the state. I don't think it's New York, the city. Ah. It's massive. Fact check. According to a few different sources, the garbage Island is more than 600,000 square miles, twice the size of Texas. That's a lot bigger than New York. So do you think um, Michael Bloomberg, speaking of New York City, is going to run for president? Oh, yeah. You do? Yeah. Yeah. And is Elizabeth Warren going to run? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I I think that that since it's now okay for you to be unknowledgeable about um, government processes and still become um, a president or any other um, part of the organization of, of government, right. it's up for grabs. I think if you have the idea that you want to run, you're going to see a lot of people running. Oh, yeah, that Michael Avenetti guy. Isn't he Stormy Daniels' attorney? Didn't he say he was going to run, too? I haven't heard that. <laughs> oh. But okay. I don't doubt it. Okay. I don't doubt it. I huh. really, I think that, but however, I what people want to see are more parties, and people were saying at this last election it was the end of the Republican Party. I, I just think that the parties morph. There's two. And who, like Donald Trump was a, was a Democrat for most of his life. Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. And then he runs for office and he is a Republican. Mm-hmm. So it's basically where you can see your platform or your ideas fitting the best. Mm-hmm. 
because mm-hmm. it's weird now. It is weird. I think it's weird and more different, whatever you want to say, and uh, better or worse, it's changing. And mm-hmm. I think you're going to see a lot of people running, lots. Are we going to see a swing back to equilibrium in this country? Uh, do you anticipate some so something it's ba- <laughs> closer to normalcy again? So, yeah, so it's basically, are you an opti- uh, optimist uh, or a pessimist? Right. That's right. right now, I'm really pessimistic. Um, but um, I'm encouraged by what Obama had said. It's like this country you know, comes up and it's down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I go back to um, just after the uh, Civil War when Grant was president, where he was a severe alcoholic and you could go with a bottle of whiskey and get government favors, um, where bribery was out in the open and go and bribe this guy from a government office and get whatever you want Mm -hmm. at a time when our country was the most divided and probably at its most uh, possible point of breakage. It was very, very touch and go at that time. Well, we survived that. Mm-hmm. We'll get out of this too. But it is. But times are really weird. It's really and and as a news person, it's really stressful because it seems like it's one controversy after another, after uh, another. Right. So this news, what they call news, um, uh, news fatigue. Right. As because I do news every day. It's mm-hmm. a very real thing because mm-hmm. you hear it constantly. That's right. And that's kind of how we started our talk today. So yeah. This idea about, you know, just kind of exhausting people or baff- confounding them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this, I, you can't be con- so constantly stressed for so long and be able to function in a healthy way. So don't get news fatigue. Take another trip if it's a Pacific Rim tour or whatever it (laughs) might be. Um, You know, I'm finding that I'm reaching out to our friends in other parts of the world to say, you know, this has to be a temporary circumstance. Please know we're all still friends and not everyone thinks the way that you might see represented in the news right now. Um, Because there are a lot more normal people than (laughs) than crazy ones out there. Yeah, it's a... Yeah, I, I, I really have a hard time with denying facts is really like when it's bold or or even when you say one thing to another, right. you know, not what I say what I do and right. follow what people do. Yeah. And, you know, I don't care for people doing things like, you know, separating kids from their parents and, and not only that, but saying that's a good policy to keep people from coming into the country. That's... It's mind blowing that that is even considered. That's uh, right. In a world. Or, or if you're accustomed to living in a penthouse somewhere and having servants, you know, people to cook your food and everything, you can't imagine the terror that people in Honduras or Guatemala might have in their everyday lives, you know, who want to flee those places because they're uh, terrified for their children or themselves. Uh, you know, they, they want jobs and livelihoods and you know our country was built on immigration um my you know norwegian grandparents uh, you know worked very hard to accomplish what they did in this country and we're really proud to be part of it um but to shut the door and say you know you we don't care if somebody is going to kill you tomorrow or or you know you have 
your organs <laughs> robbed or whatever yeah, it might be, true. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the, you, rape is a, a weapon of war. Oh. Um, you know, the, the terrible violence that people face that we, we don't think about in this country routinely anyway. Yeah. Well, there was a, just a story it was on NPR, um, about how people, they're trying to get kids back to their parents in wherever they are in say Honduras. Mm -hmm. And the parents are saying, no, no, Mm -hmm. keep them. Because right. if they come back here, they may they may die. They yeah. may get killed because of what's happening in this country. Because we think differently, or whatever the situation is, they're mm-hmm. they're afraid that their kids are going to die, that they are going to die. Um, no, just leave them in the United States. Yeah. That's that's a horrible thing to have to even consider. Yeah. That okay, even though he's five years old, he's better off by himself in right. a foreign country. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, my husband and I took one of these cruises and we ended up we spent some time in Honduras and ended up in we were Grand Cayman some of these highfalutin places <laughs> and it was so surreal to what you see on these luxury cruise ships and maybe in the uh, you know just the immediate coastal areas or these obs- these weird little towns that are owned by cruise ship companies they just fix them up so they're really, really? fancy yeah, I mean, it, it's not really like a city into itself, but it might as well be. It's the gift shops that cater just to the people who disembark from these big cruise ships and stuff. That don't go too far inland. And, and then if you get in a, you know, you get a car, you get somebody to take you out into the countryside where people actually live, it's not like that at all. And, you know, visitors from abroad are, are cautioned to don't walk on the beach uh, alone or something like that you know always have somebody with you mm-hmm. don't stray too far into the jungle yeah, um, no and but but we don't see that we just see the pretty shiny parts of it when we it, it traveling in certain ways mm-hmm. yeah it's uh but oh yeah I, I i i want to be i want to be optimistic yeah. I, I want to because that part of the that is just me I want to be, things are going to be all right. I mean, it, it'll turn out okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it doesn't, what I'm realizing is it doesn't take too much to, democracy is fragile, mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. And when things become, I'm trying to be really careful with my language here. Yeah. <laughs> but you have, when, when, but when you see like just norms being ignored, um, or like it was the story today is about how the, uh, the interior secretary Zinke is, uh, is, uh, firing or has fired or will fire his, the person who is in charge of oversight for the interior department, even while he is being investigated. Oh yeah. Right. And, and then you have some land ownership conflict of interest in, in Montana too. And, and, and see news fatigue. Exactly. Like, where you but there's always a, a disaster happening somewhere, or uh, and it's not reality TV. This is real stuff with yeah. real lives in the balance. Yeah, um, yeah. I think there are a lot of us who want to be optimists, and it, it's you know I I'd like to be able to make a difference and to help and to be involved in some substantive way. But it's hard to know even where to start. Mm-hmm. We you know we can all talk about the problems but unless we you know go to the polls 
uh, write our letters to the editor or call into our radio stations or something like that. Um, and people know that their neighbors are, are involved. Maybe they'll become more involved too. That's great. Yeah. Let's just end it right there. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. My pleasure. For coming in and doing a conversation. It was great fun. Yeah. This is exciting. I'll be interested to see how, how the podcasts evolve. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy Cheney, ladies and gentlemen, isn't she nice and so smart and, you know, just to think that she used to be mayor of my town, Moscow, Idaho. It was great having her in for a conversation. Well, thank you for listening and check out the website, www.tomversations.com. That's T-H-O-M versations, where the H makes all the difference. Make sure you subscribe. Catch you next time. I'm Tom Cocaine, over and out. Over and out.